are listening to the podcast of Trinity Grace Church Williamsburg. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in Brooklyn. For more information on our church, please visit tgcwilliamsburg.com. teaching text today comes from John chapter 1. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. This is the word of the Lord. So I guess the best way to do, to do this is just rip it off like a band-aid and just come right out and say it. Today we are talking about evangelism. And the reason for that is because when Jesus summed up the mission of his life during the last week, it sounded like this, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And then when Jesus was describing what God was like to captivated crowds, he told three stories about a single-minded pursuit of the lost. There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And then when the priests were infuriated because Jesus was going around acting like he had authority without credentials and just pretending like the presence of God could be encountered anywhere, even outside the temple, Jesus explained himself this way, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now I could go on and on with different quotes of Jesus like this, but I think at this point you should just take my word for it that the lost were and are the priority of Jesus. And I personally find it helpful that Jesus uses the word lost to describe those outside of loving relationship with him. Lost, searching for a home, for safety, for rest, for who knows how long. Lost, that frantic feeling that runs around inside you until finally you see something that looks familiar and then there's calm. That's how Jesus describes the experience of life outside of covenant relationship with him. And the lost were and are the priority of Jesus. And because that is who God revealed himself to be a couple thousand years later, there happened to be a room full of a, peop- a bunch of people that are not entirely crazy, that are mostly normal, generally reasonable, thoughtful, sincere, socially capable, emotionally intelligent to some degree or another, people like us, who with a totally straight face and a serious expression talk about something called evangelism. Yes, evangelism. And if the moment I say that word, a chill runs down your spine, then you should know that you're not alone. 
And in fact, if the word itself is, is a speed bump for you, just change it out for a different word. The word evangelism never appears in the Bible. So there's nothing particularly holy about it. It's just the best word I know to describe what we're talking about. But if that word makes a chill run down your spine, then you're not alone. Uh, the Barna Research Group published a study called Is Evangelism Going Out of Style a few years back? And they polled over 2,000 American Christian church-going adults and found these two stats that I think are quite interesting. 100% of evangelicals agree with the statement, I personally have a responsibility to tell others about my religious beliefs. But only 69% said yes to this statement. During the past 12 months, I explained my religious beliefs to someone who had different beliefs in hopes that they might accept Jesus Christ as their savior. So when it comes to evangelism, there is a 31% gap between belief and behavior. The, the things I believe and the way I actually live. And in fact, everywhere you look in the church today, you'll see this widening gap between belief and practice when it comes to evangelism. And I think that's because for most previous generations, uh, societal norms were king, and the individual would conform him or herself to the societal norm. But today, the self is king, and society must conform to the self. The only universally agreed upon moral wrong that exists in our culture today is you taking away my freedom to define me. And that means the greatest cultural taboo that exists in the Western world today is conversion. I mean, doesn't that just make your skin crawl? You want to convert me? Or worse, you want me to want to convert other people. It's hard to get there. And that's because cultural stigmas are attached to evangelism of any kind, but perhaps none greater than evangelical Christians trying to convert people to their belief. And so as sincere followers of Jesus, we find ourselves torn between these two realities. One is the reality of the priority of Jesus. Can we just see that slide another time? The fact that you cannot take Jesus seriously without seeing that he puts this at the very heart of his mission. And so our problem isn't a lack of awareness. Our problem is awareness. It's that when I actually attempt to live that, to express it through my life, it always comes out looking more like this. Can we go to the next slide? <laughs> right? I mean, it always comes out just feeling cheap and insincere. And, and, and if I've had a, a totally world-altering, life-changing encounter of being washed in the love of God, and that rescued me from the tyranny of myself and set me free to live whole in the world, and then try to express that, and it feels like product placement, you know, like Jesus wants me to advertise for him, but in a subtle enough way that everyone else doesn't know I'm advertising, like product placement, it just, it feels like the call of Jesus to evangelism cheapens my faith. It doesn't magnify it. It's not building it and fanning it into flame. It's, it's dumbing it down into something smaller, to something cheap, to something I'm trying to sell you. And that doesn't sit right. So Jesus, if you were baiting me into your PR team, I just wish you had been up front about it. If you wanted me to stand on Bedford Avenue with a clipboard, like waving everyone down, I just wish you had led with that. 
Because that feels like an inadequate expression of the sincerity of the relationship that I carry with you. Because many of us that sit in this room had an encounter with a God that turned our lives totally upside down in the best way possible. But then when we try to live that out in a pluralistic, intellectual, spiritually open, but religiously suspicious environment like New York, it feels a lot more like product placement than like streams of living water are spilling the banks of my soul and rushing into the city around me. So, the central priority of Jesus gets pushed to the periphery of our own priorities. And we end up with either a normalized or a privatized faith. All right, we normalize Jesus. We've, some, some of us at least have bought into this idea of I'm doing God a favor by making him seem as normal as possible. Like Jesus is so laid back and cool with whatever, you can follow him in such a subtle way that no one would even notice. And we kind of live as if God's like, you're killing it down there. You're disguising me masterfully. <laughs> you can be a Christian and be completely normal, and so many of us are doing our very best to prove it. And I think we should just ask ourselves the question, have we elevated appearing normal over Christ-like love? Or we privatize Jesus because we live in a culture that's wholly intolerant of evangelism, and so we've maintained our faith, but we've retreated with it respectfully into the private sector. Look, you just do your thing, and I'll do mine. And so we live this compartmentalized existence where Jesus is a central part of my life when I'm around other people to whom that's culturally palatable. But when I'm in other environments, Jesus is a very private, unspoken part of my life because it just wouldn't be respectful to bring up his name in a place like this. See, many of us have perfected the careful dance of never being thought less of for following Jesus. Jesus, who said this, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. See, if your primary concern is trying to follow Jesus in a way that socially costs you nothing, Jesus says you're in bad company. And so we're left with this pluralistically accepted, socially viable, well-respected, and powerless faith. Where we avoid off-putting confrontation, but we also avoid risk and trust. And we correct the very worst of Christian misconceptions, but we also miss out on the very best of spiritual fruit. Where we're thoughtful and well-rounded, but we almost never encounter God in a way that surprises us. And at this point, I imagine that about half of you just want to dismiss everything I said beyond this. And the other half of you are ready to grit your teeth and get back out there and try harder. <laughs> But I think there's actually something much deeper than just willpower that exists in this widening gap between belief and practice when it comes to evangelism. There's this more recent Barna study. This one focused specifically on church-going um, American uh, millennial Christians. And I think that the, the numbers they get from this are really interesting. So let me give you a few. 96% of millennials said this, part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus. Great. 94% said the best thing I can ever, or that can ever happen to someone is that they come to know Jesus. Beautiful. So 94% of millennials are saying the most loving thing I could ever do for someone else is introduce them to Jesus so they can live a flourishing life in the kingdom of God. Awesome start. 
86% went further than that, saying, when someone raises questions about faith, I know how to respond. Don't worry about me in an evangelistic encounter. I can handle myself. <laughs> I can handle myself. 73% took it further than that. It's not just that I can handle myself and back into a corner. I'm gifted at sharing my faith with other people. Gifted. Alpha. Why are you guys running alpha? Bring your friends to me. <laughs> now, despite all of that, 47% of people agreed with this. It's wrong to share your beliefs with someone of a different worldview. What? What? How can you agree with the statement, the most loving thing I could ever do is introduce someone else to Jesus, while also agreeing with the statement, it's wrong to share Jesus with someone that isn't currently in relationship with him? See, the church is full of evangelists in theory and then relativists in practice. We are so torn and confused and paralyzed when it comes to the topic of sharing our faith. And the tragic misconception that makes evangelism feel like product placement is that we tend to believe a particular lie, and it's this. God shows up when I show up. Said another way, it would be something like this. God begins his work in the life of someone else when I awkwardly breach the faith topic in the life of someone else. And that could not be further from the truth. In January of 2015, I was standing in this room and there was this one guy named Mike sitting in, an empty or sitting in a seat full of a sea of empty seats all around him. And that's because he had recently made a New Year's resolution to be more spiritual, and our church was the first stop on a tour of spiritual environments that he was going to be making around Brooklyn during the coming year. And many of you know Mike's story. Because I've told his story, and he's told his story. Honestly, we've run this thing out for everything it's worth. He didn't make any of the other stops. He was intrigued here and then through Sundays and community and participation in Alpha Course, he was met by the love of God and he was brought to his knees and filled with joy somehow at the same time. And as I got a front row seat to see all of that, I also felt the Spirit of God speaking something to me. And I remember God whispering to me, Tyler, where were you when I started all of that in his life? And I was, I was resting. On New Year's Day 2016, when Mike was making a New Year's resolution to be more spiritual that led him to be one of the greatest sources of pastoral joy I've ever had, I was at my family's house for the holidays eating stale cookies and binge-watching Making a Murderer, because that's when the Avery family was taking the world by storm. You were watching it, too. Um, and I just remember thinking, you know, I, I wasn't planning, I wasn't scheming, I wasn't putting together an outreach initiative. I wasn't even deep locked in in prayer. I was just resting. And God was working. And I heard God say, don't you see? I'm not giving you an obligation called evangelism. I'm giving you an invitation to join that which is nearest my heart. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Evangelism is not a redeemed obligation. It's a loving invitation. It's not the responsibility to take God to where God is most needed. It is the invitation to join God where he's already going anyway. And so we cringe at the thought of evangelism, but that's because we've bought this illusion um, that it's all up to us. 
that somewhere along the way, the Son of Man stopped seeking and saving the lost, and he dropped that into our laps. And that could not be further from the truth. These are famous words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 9. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers out into his harvest field. Now, have you ever noticed that Jesus never instructs us to pray for a harvest? Jesus never instructs us to pray that God would pursue wandering people. That part's guaranteed. Right? Remember, he, he's the one who came to seek and save the lost. He's the shepherd that leaves the 99 to go off and pursue the one. He's the doctor who goes looking for the sick. God's pursuit of people is a given. But how many times have you heard a really well-meaning Christian pray for a harvest? And I think God's answer to that prayer is always just open your eyes. In John's version of the exact same story, Jesus is on his way with his disciples through Samaria, and he says to them, look, the fields are already white and ready for harvest. He's in Samaria, a place where the disciples, where the Jewish people believed a pagan nation that was beneath them lived, people that were beyond the scope of God's compassion. And as they're making their way through there, Jesus says, look, here in Samaria, I see fields ready for harvest. God's always pursuing people. He never instructs us to pray that he would go after the lost. He prays that the found would notice and join him. And God has not changed. The Son of Man still is seeking and saving the lost, and we have not changed. We still, like the disciples, compartmentalize the environments where God is and is not active and working. We've just replaced Samaria with my office, where sure, if pressed, I'm sure that God is actively seeking and pursuing a relationship with everyone there, but I've never entered it awake to the presence of God in the way that I might in an environment like this one. We still pick and choose places where we anticipate God's presence and God's activity based on our scale, not his. And so Jesus is saying, don't pray that I would go. I've already gone. Pray that you would see and pray that you would come with me in your workplace, among your friend group, in your home. Don't you see that I'm just a step ahead of you? Won't you come with me? Evangelism is not taking God where God is needed. It is joining God in going where God is already going. Now, when that gets expressed through different personalities and temperaments and life stages and circumstances, evangelism comes out looking so many different ways. There is no one-size-fits-all approach to offering the love of Jesus to the world around you. Sometimes it looks like boldness, sometimes like prayer, sometimes like friendship, sometimes like listening, sometimes it just looks like honesty. But every expression of evangelism always looks like invitation. We cannot follow Jesus and ignore the imperative of invitation. So that brings me to my favorite evangelism story in the whole of the Bible, which we just read a moment ago. I'm just gonna read you part of it again. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the, the one Moses wrote about in the law and the one about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael said. Come and see, said Philip. Come and see. 
That's how Nathaniel ended up as being one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. That's how Nathaniel ended up being one of the 12 people that journeyed with the peasant whose legacy far outran every Roman Caesar. I mean, has there been a more exclusive group to get in on ever in the history of the world than the 12 disciples? And yet, how did Nathaniel end up there just through simple invitation? Or just, just come and see. In the final pages of the biography, Straight Pepper Diet, Joe, who is a recovering addict, walks out of an AA meeting in downtown LA, and he's on the way to his car. And he notices this guy who's walking in the same direction as him. And, and, and he was in the meeting, he was just in, but he hadn't seen him before. And so he said, hey, is this your first time at the meeting? Yeah, it is. Are you walking this way? Yeah, I'm just going to the bus stop down there. Oh, okay, I'm going that way too. And they begin walking down the street, and this guy, this first-time guy, begins to explain that meetings aren't really for him. The only reason he's there is because his lawyer thought it would be a good look, because he's got multiple DUIs on his record now. He's going to be pleading his case. And so if he had made a couple meetings before the court date, that would probably be helpful in the eyes of the judge who's going to be deciding everything. And he says, okay, man, well, I'm parked just down the block. If you, I'd be happy just to give you a ride if that's easier for you than the bus. Oh, man, the bus takes forever. That would be perfect. So the DUI guy spends the whole car ride sitting in Joe's passenger seat complaining how unbearable it is to deal with court dates while smoking a cigarette in his car while the windows are rolled up. Now what he doesn't know is that Joe has just been released from prison and knows exactly how hard it is to deal with the court system. And Joe has more recently than that stopped smoking and knows exactly how hard it is to battle cravings while someone smokes a a cigarette in a car with the windows up. But he restrains the desire to one-up this guy's story with his own story. He restrains the desire to be offended that, that he didn't even ask before lighting up in his car, and he just listens. And he gets all the way to his house, and, and he stops right in front of his house, and Joe opens his mouth for the first time the whole car ride. And he's listened to this guy explain why meetings are totally not for him, but he, he gets why it might work for some people, but it's not really his thing. He doesn't have a problem anyway, and on and on and on. And then he just says, hey, man, I'm going to a meeting tomorrow, same time, same place. Can I pick you up? Uh, sure. And that's how it happens. That's how it happens. AA is a cultural phenom in the world today. I mean, even in a place like Brooklyn, where you will struggle to find a, a church sanctuary full of people on a Sunday morning, every morning and every night of the week, you will find church basements everywhere filled with people in 12-step meetings. It is a medical wonder in terms of its effectiveness. Psych psychologists have studied 12-step meetings for decades and still cannot medically explain why it is the most effective way for people, for addicts to find freedom. So how do you get into a community of healing so profound that it doesn't even fit into our medical research like this? Hey, just come and see. Just simple invitation. That's how people find a community that loves them and supports them and listens to them and helps them get free. That's how those drowning in addiction can experience healing and freedom and family is just someone moving slowly enough to say, hey, could I give you a ride home? Hey, this place is where I found life. Why don't you just come and see? 
In fact, inspired by the story of the biblical church, the 12-step literature tells you that becoming a person of invitation is part of your personal healing. That, that you cannot be made whole if you don't use that wholeness on others. That it inhibits your own healing process. So we talk all the time about the power of the early church community, right? We talk all the time about the way they loved one another and shared meals and prayed together and bore one another's burdens and paid each other's debts, but the early church was actually known for two things. They had a two-part reputation. Number one, the way they loved one another. Number two, how invitational they were to the lost. The early church, by definition, was the most evangelistic community of people that history has ever seen. The first few hundred years following the death of Jesus saw the greatest statistical revolution on record, and it included people of different races, classes, cultures, and languages. The early church transcended every barrier that should have hemmed her in, and that's because the beauty of the community was tied to the audacity of invitation. If you study early church practices, you will find that there are compelling pictures of love for one another, and there are equally formative, compelling practices for radical invitation to the stranger. What was the way into a community that profound that we've never seen anything like it since? It was this, just come and see. You're invited, just come and see. Simple invitation. So, I'd like just to bring this a little bit closer. Based on the most recent numbers I can find, the percentage of Williamsburg, Brooklyn residents that are attending a Christian church of any variety today, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, Evangelical, any variety, comes in at 1%. Now that's one neighborhood in our city. I would venture to guess that whatever neighborhood you call home can't be that different than that. Now, Jesus talked about leaving the 99 to go after the one. The mission in Brooklyn is more like leaving the one to go after the 99. But the truth is that we are not an invitational people. I mean, the truth is that as a community, if, if you were to sit down and press me and say, Tyler, list out the defining traits of who you are as a church, invitational would not make the list. And I think that's because we've grown content to enjoy the comfortable company of the 1% while the 99 wander around lost. We are trying to drum up the early church's inner community without equally being a part of the early church's outward mission. Michael Green, who's a historian and theologian, in his book on the church's first 30 years, after detailing all the astounding practices of invitation that were common in the church's early days, concludes with this. The passion to spread the gospel was a major characteristic of the early church. They challenge us to put evangelism at the head of our list of priorities and give ourselves to it wholeheartedly, for the church in the West has grown complacent, obese, inactive, and far too respectable to do that sort of thing. See, Jesus never tells us to pray that God would pursue the lost. That part's a given. He tells us to pray that we would keep coming with him. Have we stopped going with Jesus? The most common way that God draws people into his family is this. 
It is through the gathered community of believers. It's through people being able to taste in community the presence of the living God. So at this point, every introvert in the room should be like, thank God. Tyler, I thought you were going to have me handing out pamphlets on the subway, my man. Woo! Close. And yet, the way in to even the richest church community, the most common way in is just come and see. It's simple, personal invitation. Can I tell you something far more intimidating and risky and uncomfortable than inviting a friend into your faith community? It's that same friend showing up uninvited. That takes a lot more boldness than the invitation. Only love cares enough to see that. Only love moves slowly enough to see that. Only love makes the first move. The, the only thing that can sustainably move people through their own comfort zone is love. Because inspiration fades and willpower will always burn you out and guilt has never led to redemption. So what keeps you moving through your comfort zone? Love. What keeps your attention on your coworkers or your classmates when you are drowning in deadlines? Only love will do that. What won't let you give up on that one friend that you've seen go through a thousand phases and you just don't have the energy this time? Only love. What makes being dismissed or misunderstood or rejected worth the risk? Love. And if you were to ask me, Tyler, what is one thing, the one thing I could do to accelerate my spiritual maturity, my, my discipleship with Jesus this fall? I would say, oh, that's so easy. Invite a friend to Alpha and go to the course alongside them. Because if you do that, you will find that you pray prayers that you actually really need God to answer. You will find that you squirm, evaluating your own faith from the outside through the eyes of someone else. You will find that you take risks where you need God to catch you on the other side. It's not the easiest way you could follow Jesus this fall, but it is the way that will accelerate your spiritual maturity the most. And the very best stories that will come out of this church, the ones that you will live off of for years, the ones that will become a foundation that your faith is built on, they're waiting just on the other side of simple invitation. Just come and see. Let me bring this a little bit closer. Um, here's what heaven celebrates when the lost are found. Luke 15, Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to. Three verses later, he just circles back. In the same way, I tell you there's rejoicing in the presence of angels over one sinner who repents. Just be really honest with yourself. In the last year, how many people have you personally invited into this community? In the last 12 months of your life, how many Sundays have you sat here nervous and uncomfortable, like, Tyler, don't say that like that, because you're, <laughs> you're seeing this whole thing? How many times have you taken the risk of loving invitation to share the intimacy of your community group? How many times have you dismissed yourself from inviting a friend to Alpha before even discussing it with Jesus? Would you? In the core description of your own personality, your own lifestyle, describe yourself as an invitational person. Are you living a life over which heaven is silent or over which heaven is celebrating? And I'm not asking you that to make you defensive. The only reason I'm asking you that is because 
because of the priority of Jesus. Because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And because that made me ask myself those questions. You cannot follow Jesus. You cannot come behind him as your rabbi and avoid regularly looking other human beings in the eye and saying, just come and see. Your own healing and your own wholeness is incomplete without the journey through your comfort zone to invitation. So let me now just try to bring this as close as I possibly can. I got into a conversation with uh, this woman who's a Jehovah's Witness handing out printed materials at the corner of McCarran Park uh, a little while back, and I discovered that she has spent every Saturday standing at that corner in that park for the last 30 years. I'm 31. So I'm just sitting there thinking, roughly the whole of my life, she has spent every Saturday passing out these pamphlets. And now, don't get me wrong, I disagree with her message. I think the message written on those pamphlets is manipulative and dangerous. And I disagree with her methods. I think that handing someone a piece of paper is an insufficient way for whole life transformation. And, but I am challenged by this, by her commitment to invitation. Because you know what? It far exceeds my own. And in a hyper-secular, pluralistic, intellectually intimidating city like New York, we tend to believe that our, the fight of our faith is just survival, right? Just don't get eaten up by the big, bad city. And it's like Jesus is doing everything he can throughout the Gospels to convince us, you are the dangerous ones. You are the one with two feet firmly planted in the only kingdom that will last forever, you are the one whose future is secure, who is set forever. You're the one that cannot fail. You've been given life and victory in the midst of the brokenness of this world. You are the threat here. You are the dangerous ones. And I completely believe that God has placed you in this city with this type of personality and these interests because you are the best person he ever designed to reach the sphere of relationships around you. If you live without belief that God is living and active in and through your life, then he probably won't be. But if you live with the belief that God is living and active, that the Son of Man never stops seeking and saving the lost, you will notice and be invited to join him. This is not about product placement for Jesus. It's about joining his greatest passion, and that's restored relationship with other people. So I wanna land here to share a story with you that's really inspired me. Uh, it's, it comes from Tony Campolo, who's a, a sociology professor and an author, and he opens one of his books with the story of the speaking engagement that he was invited to in Honolulu. And he lives on the East Coast, so he flies from the East Coast, from Philly to Honolulu, and he, the very first day he's there, he has crazy jet lag. So he wakes up at 2.30 in the morning, wide awake and so hungry. But this is uh, the world before Google Maps. Do you, can you even remember that? Just the Wild West out there. So, so he just walks out of his hotel and starts walking around the streets of Honolulu just looking for a restaurant that might be open anywhere. And after walking around for an hour, he finally sees this 24-hour diner and he walks into the diner. He's the only person there. He comes and sits down at the counter. He orders some food with the cook. And as he's sitting there waiting on his food, he hears you know, that bell of the door of a diner opening. 
and eight or nine female prostitutes walk into this diner, and they're not being particularly discreet about their conversation, so he hears every word they have to say as they're loudly talking and laughing. They're in that mood where everything someone else says is funny. You know, so they're loudly talking and laughing it up, and one of them says, I'm gonna be 39 tomorrow. And her friend just says, oh, what do you want us to do, throw you a party, ha ha, and they're, they're all laughing about it, and eventually they leave, and he's still sitting there at the counter, and he says to the cook, the only guy working in there, he says, hey, do they come in here every night? And he says, oh yeah, every night at 3.30 a.m., like clockwork, on the dot, every single night for years. And he said, oh, okay, that one who uh, is turning 39 tomorrow, do you know her name? Yeah, her name's Agnes. She comes in here every night. Okay, great. What if you and I threw her a birthday party? And he's like, <laughs> all right, sure. And he says, okay, here's the deal. I will go and buy all the decorations. I'll pay for the cake. I'll get everything put together. I'll show up here an hour early tomorrow if you just let me use your diner for the birthday party. Okay, great. So he gets there, 2.30 in the morning, spends an hour setting up, except when he arrives at the diner this time, there's already about 25 prostitutes crowded into the place because the cook has spread the word. <laughs> and so everyone helps piece together these cheesy papier-mâché birthday decorations all over this diner. And when these eight women throw open the door at 3.30 in the morning, everyone jumps out and says, happy birthday! And she is so shocked that her legs start shaking and they have to lead her to a stool where they've set up her birthday cake. And as they light all of the candles and everyone starts singing, tears just start streaming down Agnes's face. And they get to the end of the song and she says, I know I'm supposed to blow it out and we're all supposed to eat it, but I've never had a birthday cake before in my life. And my place is two blocks from here. Would it be okay if I just take this home? And suddenly the pendulum of this party swings from like loud and exciting to deeply serious. And so Campolo, not knowing what else to do, just like breaks into a prayer. That's what you do if you're a pastor and the moment feels weird. <laughs> they don't teach you that, but it just feels right. So, so he breaks into a prayer and as he says, amen, the cook says, you didn't tell me that you were a preacher. And he's like, well, I'm I, I kind of am. And he says, what kind of church do you belong to? And he said, I belong to the church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And that's the church of Jesus Christ. And that's the way it was actually always supposed to be. And so whatever's gotten stuck to Jesus as a result of people that used his name for something other than that, then you have to know that this is who he really is. He is the one who threw parties for prostitutes in the middle of the night and parties for tax collectors in the light of day. He created a community that was formed around his name, and that community is for sex workers sobering up over eggs and toast. It's for the pimps that are using their bodies. It's for the diner cooks that think they're just innocent bystanders, and it's for priests who think they've got it all sorted out and down to a science by now. It's for all of us. 
And it's for the intern from your office that's overwhelmed and overwhelming. And it's for the neighbor that lives upstairs. And it's for the friend that has known you far too long to take you seriously. And it's for the mom that you always chat with at the playground. And it's for the guy that works behind the counter at your gym. And it's for your roommate's new boyfriend who will never leave. And it's for you. <laughs> it's for you. And so when I say evangelism, it's that kind of party that I have in mind. And so whatever else may have gotten stuck to that idea of inviting someone else in to share this kind of life, can we recover what Jesus had in mind when he said, my mission is to seek and to save the lost? Can we be people who are bold enough to take the first risk? Can we be people that are faithful enough to pray and not give up? Can we be people honest enough to live with complete sincerity? Can we be people who are loving enough to listen, to really listen, and then to move through our comfort zone out of love for someone else and always let our risk make the room for someone else's risk first? Can we be that kind of people? Can we become an invitational kind of people? I gotta end, so I guess I'll go back and end where we started. Just a few verses after Philip says, come and see. Nathaniel encounters Jesus for himself, and it sounds like this, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And that very day, Jesus introduced him to the God that he thought for sure he was okay without, and he restored him to the family that he was always made to live within, and he came right into the place of his deepest pain and need and brought life. What do you call that? Jesus called it salvation. Salvation. But what does that mean? What does it mean when you're not wearing a blazer once in your life and standing on a stage talking to people? What does that mean when you're sitting across from a totally normal person having a totally normal conversation? What does salvation mean? Well, salvation starts with God and not us. It's an all-powerful God who's loving and merciful and kind, who is for you and not against you, who is so for you, in fact, that he humbled himself so far as to make his power unrecognizable and show up in our place living as a common person. Now, what could possibly make God undress himself of every garment of his glory while running all the way from heaven down to earth? Only love. But salvation isn't cheap. It's not just some kind of feel-good story. It is gritty and earthy and unflinchingly honest. So salvation acknowledges the stark truth of the human condition, the fact that we all live with terminal problems, death and all of the ultimate questions that loom with it. And all of us also live with internal problems, which are a lot harder for us to ignore until they confront us later. I'm talking about all that, that unique cocktail of resentment and fear and loneliness that every one of us lives with, that inner angry fight in you that will never quite stop, that unshakable inch of insecurity, the, that search for intimacy that we can get close to and we can soothe but we can never quite solve. Now salvation is not pulling a parachute so you escape from all of that stuff, it's a way to move right through it to look the honest state of the human condition in the eye and to journey through it with courage to redemption on the other side. It is a place to invite God into my profound pain and struggle. So salvation does not avoid death, it chooses it. And by choosing it, God also made a choice available to you and me. 
I'll take your terminal problems and your internal problems. I'll take the ultimate need and all the unique mess that you've made of yourself in the meantime. And in return, I'll give you my life. I'll give you my end. I'll give you the kind of life that keeps on moving toward redemption until the whole thing gets healed. I'll give you a new kind of future, one that is forever exploring the depths of this kind of love. And it does not even stop there. You're not just a victim who's in need of rescue. You also become the agent of rescue for the rest of the world. The ultimate dignity of salvation is that God makes us participants in the ongoing redemption. And so salvation does not end with your individual rescue, though that would be pretty good. God will not stop until he's made a city more beautiful and diverse than New York will ever be, and he's filled it with every type of person that has ever walked the face of the earth, and then he's gonna light the whole thing with the glow of his unstoppable loving presence. And we are gonna live forever in that city and not grow old and weary. Now we go through spurts and stops and starts when it comes to invitation, right? We go through spurts of invitation and then long stretches of turning inward and we are the church. And of course, we're some lesser version of it than Jesus had in mind when he paid everything on that sacred, cursed tree, but we are the church. And so he's proud of my stumbling and fumbling and forgetting and he's proud of yours too. Because God is still enough. So you don't have to be. He is the author of salvation, and he is still enough so that you and I don't have to be. God is still enough even for you. And when the simplicity and profundity of that crashes into a single individual life, the word for it is salvation. Jesus, you're enough. You're enough for our city, and you're enough for me. Your healing is complete enough. Your love is clean enough, and pure enough, and constant enough. You're enough for my deepest pain and my deepest need, and you're enough for my half-hearted stops and starts when it comes to invitation. You are enough. And so I guess as a, as a people, we could end gritting our teeth, or we could end dismissing, but I would rather if we just ended praising, just saying, you're enough when I'm aware of it, and you're enough when I forget it. So I have no idea how God might be speaking to each individual in the room. I only know this, that he certainly is speaking. And so in just a moment, we're gonna invite you to respond and you can come and you can feast at this table. You can take a cracker and dip it in a cup and you can taste and remember the one who left the 99 to come after you.
And if you'd like to pray on your own, you can come and you can kneel on these rugs. We also have a prayer ministry that's up on either side of the room that would love to pray with you. Whatever God is doing in your life, you are invited to respond to him today. And we believe that, that responding with our physical body is often important because God came to us in a physical body and he made himself vulnerable to show us his love. And so the most powerful way we respond to his love is by making ourselves vulnerable as well. So why don't we stand together? And if our prayer ministry team would go ahead and come up to the front. Church, you're invited to come and to feast because this is good news. And you're invited to respond however God may be speaking.